years and years ago, I dated this vegetarian girl and I lost a bunch of weight because like I just ate what she ate. So I remember that. So it was like a health thing. But I wasn't really sure because I really like meat like a lot. I had to fly recently and I had to book this flight last minute. Only a first class seat left. So I flew first class and they only had two choices. And one was like prime rib and the other was like a vegetarian falafel. No, if you get the veggie option on plane, yeah. if you tell them that you're veggie, yeah. it's so much better. Yeah, that's what it's Even exactly. not in first class. Yeah, so I saw the prime rib and it looked disgusting. And then my vegetarian falafel and it was airplane food was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'm on an airplane. It was just like a moment. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this. I'm just going to try this and see what happens. You decided to be a vegetarian because of airplane food? Kind of. There's such a big, beautiful world of vegetarian food out there for you. If that was good. I'm going to find, well, that's, I'm going to find out. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a tour, a vegetarian tourist. Yeah. Oddly not as hungry. Well, maybe you're getting food that's more complex to digest. You're not digesting as fast. I think that's what it is. Because I just ate so, my, my diet was so protein heavy before. The signals just weren't even getting to my brain that I'd eat. No, it's for real. For real. It's just like, yeah. keep filling the hall. Just put it in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
I'm not really sure. I get disproportionately concerned about stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I really do. I get anxious about this stuff. And in a way, this podcast serves as like a way to like work out my design anxiety. What because is I Charles literally, worried about? <laughs> I'm just like, you know, what if there is like nobody's ever going to look back at the 2000s or the 2010s mm-hmm. and be like, oh, yeah, that chair that was a thing then. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to sit there quietly and be like, well, <laughs> you were, you gave me this look like, you. Uh, Charles, you're on your own. That's fine. No, I, yeah. uh, <laughs> I can't help you. No. This is this is an anxiety no, no. that is of one person. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm with you. I'm with you totally. I was just thinking, are we worried about our, let's just say generation for lack of a better word, not like a generation age wise, more of like an academic grouping in time than a family based age based generation. I don't know. Hmm. Like, what is the degree of mattering about being remembered? versus mattering at the moment in time. Mm -hmm. I think about this, at least most recently, I've been thinking about it in terms of fashion, because Mm. we just, I think, are kind of coming out of this kind of norm core, awful 90s clothing trend that just has been bothering me just seeing it, you know, like I just hate looking at it. it. Well, maybe we aren't. But it seems like it's fading a little bit and that it can't possibly last that much longer because we're switching through all these things a whole lot faster now, mm-hmm. right? Not that long before, you know, we're just going through the decades. I don't know. You could probably do this like 200 years ago and be like, oh, yeah, that was the fashion of the, you know, 17 whatevers mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. the various decades in the 1800s. We don't know those as well in our current state, but you can definitely be like, oh, yeah, that was like 1910s for sure. This is the 20s look. And you can easily do that with beyond fashion, you know, into design and furniture and things. Mm-hmm. Here's a 30s look, a 40s look, a 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s. But then what? Right. right? What is the 2000s look? It seems to me like a lot of what the look of the 2000s then was, was this rehashing of all the decades that came before and Mm -hmm. kind of this weird blending, squishing together of these things. And Mm -hmm. then it was like rapid fire between all the other decades. Mm -hmm. What used to be a decade's worth of style got squished down into a real trendy kind of thing that lasted maybe a year or two before going to the next thing. And so the result of that is there isn't any like style of the 2000s. I don't know if there is, and there may not be. It doesn't sound like it should be something you're worried about at first. And maybe this is just because I don't sit up late at night thinking about fashion trends and I have anxiety about that. Well, but you, you literally just said that. About, but it, it was just about chairs. Yes, I know. I know. Why I'm worried about chairs and not shirts and dresses, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to wait until I talk to my therapist to find out what that means. But as you were talking just now, I was reminded of a nerdy sci-fi reference. This movie, Minority Report, mm-hmm. with a Steven Spielberg movie with Tom Cruise. It's a very, very futuristic movie about, like, preventing crime before it happens. And there's mm-hmm. all this really futuristic design in it. But there's this funny moment. When this moment happened in the film, the entire theater chuckled. When Tom Cruise is taking this woman who he's trying to save, she needs a change of clothes. And they stumble into this futuristic gap. And it's branded as gap. Mm-hmm. And they go in. And all of the clothes is basically the same (laughs) as what we have right now. And as he walked in, he starts grabbing shirts and stuff. The audience started chuckling as if there's this knowledge that, and maybe I read a lot into this, but like today there is no style. And there was this knowing laughter about the future that we've doomed ourselves to where there is no style. Mm -hmm. And you could replace the word style with design. Yeah, no, I think they're exactly the same thing. I think fashion and really chairs, pants, same same thing. (laughs) Right. And it seems innocuous, right, in terms of chairs and pants. Like, who cares, right? I care. Who cares? I care about pants. (laughs) This week's show is titled Rachel Cares About Pants. We actually, what was the Lindy V. Shang episodes? 
technically about pants. Yeah, but I think it's it's just sometimes easier, especially for people that don't have a big background in design. Right. We can literally, it's the same conversation, whether right. we're talking about pants or, you know, fall versus spring fashion lines or whatever. Right. The same thing as talking about chairs and wall coverings and whatever yeah, types as of it furniture could be talking and about architectural styles. And mid-century. Yeah, it's just a are, different way to approach it. Yeah, and, and those are harder conversations to have. And they seem more academic. If we started the podcast off and we were like, oh, today we're going to talk about how modernism will never return and how the arts and crafts movement of the blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah changed that. And yeah. that's, believe it or not, a similar conversation, even though yeah. the context is a little different. Because it has all these implications for architecture and interior design and graphic design. In fact, I've been doing a little bit of research for a future episode about how architecture firms can now fabricate some of their own stuff, whether it's a door or an architectural feature or, you know, now 3D printing technology is good enough that we can just iterate final products in a way that firms never could before. Mm -hmm. And that's the same as going and getting business cards from Moo and they can mm-hmm. print 100 unique business cards for you immediately. I love Moo. And, right. Props to Moo. But I counter you here because you said you know, having access to all these, you know, additive manufacturing, all these things mm-hmm. makes it so that architects for the first time can be creating some of the pieces and parts that go into their products. What I want to counter you with is that it's actually more cyclical. These types of manufacturing techniques are new, yes. But back in time... That was occurring not with 3D printing, but architects were much more involved in the master builder, master craftsman thing. And it would be that, oh, I'm going to have this beautiful building. The doors are all going to be custom and hand built and blah, blah, blah. And the doorknobs are hand forged and, you know, all these things was a thing that those master craftsmen mm-hmm. did do. And then we went through this period of time when that just wasn't... Prior to mass production, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went to mass production, and now it's possible to circle back around and do that kind of personalization because the advantages of some of the modern additive manufacturing and new manufacturing techniques can actually take the price back down so that it is attainable again mm-hmm. to have that level of control over the parts and pieces and materials of your right. design. That's the exciting part to me. Yeah. But that's why I'm even more critical of it because it's, and I hesitate to use this word because it has an old really negative kind connotation it's insidious it's attractive at first because and i'm always in favor of design being more accessible Mm -hmm. and so there's no question it's making design more accessible but i'm wary of the consequences of good design because it's quantity there are more types of unique designs available now than ever Mm -hmm. what does that mean for the quality of design because it means it will go down but that's does it i don't i don't know okay yeah, okay. Maybe I don't know. But any time that anything gets easier to do, there will be more people, more companies working on it and producing things. And there will be a diversity of quality. Some people will do it better than others. Some people will create truly horrible things, truly horrible sure. designs. Sure. And many people won't realize that they're horrible and will love them. And, you know, everyone has their own. And does speed equal thoughtlessness is another question I have about it. I think that that could go either way. Well, speed of what? Speed of production or speed yes. of design? Both. If speed of design, because the, I would the, say that probably is less quality unless you, you know, every now and then there's going to be some design that is just so brilliant and you just come right to it. Sure. Right. But most of the time. Because there's this other implication to it. So catalog X comes out with a completely different line every 30 days. 
someone is designing a completely different line every 30 days. Yeah, that's going to be terrible. Right. So to use the example I used in the intro, mid-century modern design did not happen overnight. Now, of course, we only look back at the examples worth keeping. And those examples worth keeping are the top 15% of stuff that was made over the course of 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. So that was a legacy that was left to us because of the organic evolution of it by several designers intentionally and not intentionally collaborating over a period of time. Mm -hmm. But now it's just content. It's just put out as much as possible, as fast as possible. New seems to be more valued than thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Maybe well, as a hypothesis, and this could good. This could be connected to Netflix and everything. Like you yeah. can keep going. It's is that design is, just becoming content. I think that's a giant umbrella statement that we could apply across a world's worth of various societies. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot feeding into it because you have you know a world full of people who are getting used to or even addicted to that degree of change and new things every moment. Mm-hmm. Attention spans are shorter. There's less appreciation for thoughtfulness of things that take time and a need for quick changes on everything. And so, you know, it's hard to know how you come back from that. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's like the thing. That's what's keeping me up. There are it's people like once that can't you... watch more than, you know, can't watch a play Yeah, because the camera angle doesn't change. Right. You don't, it's not like you're moving it's around. It's what do you do? How do you come back from it? When Earlier, when you mentioned like design in the 1800s, the first thing that occurred to me was so much of that was driven because you might only get one suit every five years. Mm-hmm. So, of course, design was going to change really slowly. So right now, it would be pretty hard for us as an untrained eye to determine whether a suit was from... 1890 or 1905, mm-hmm. even though those are now, if I showed you a suit from 15 years ago, you'd nail it versus yeah. today's suit because. Well, or actually we've cycled. Well, no, not, <laughs> not years quite ago. yet. Not quite back. To We're that. not quite there, but it's but, coming. I actually, yeah. as a complete side note, 80s men's styles are coming back yeah. and the baggy pants and the baggy oh. shirts and that. Yep. It's all coming back. But anyway, that's a total side note. Okay. But um, still. But what occurred to me was it was technology driven because of the lack of ability to mass produce. It was a new technology in the early 1900s to mass produce anything. Most suits were still made by tailors. Some were sold by a place like Sears, but it was not that accessible. Mm -hmm. And as technology got faster, of course, styles shortened. But now it seems to be like instantaneous. Well, you want a glimmer of hope? I would love a glimmer of hope. You saw that Forever 21? The news about business. That? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's related to this. But it illuminate for me because I don't understand Forever 21 enough to know what it is and why that specifically is important. So Forever 21, I've actually never even been inside of one. They, they... <laughs> we, we share that. We share that. <laughs> but <laughs> my understanding is that they were a fast fashion company, fast mm-hmm. fashion brand, you know, that even faster than I realized, you could go into those stores every month and it would be like a whole new collection of merchandise and it was super cheap you could go in there buy a whole new outfit and be out of there for like next to nothing and it would fall apart and break in a couple months of use but by then you're on to the next brand new outfit that they're offering Mm -hmm. and so it was this churn of stuff and one of the reasons that they went out of business is that that is not popular anymore 
the generation that is of the age that would shop at a store like that, you know, young people, mm -hmm. younger than us. Wait, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was giving you an opportunity to be like, you call me young. <laughs> younger than us. The people of the age that look at us and say, both of you are old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is quite a few people now. Both Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they more and more care a whole lot more about the impact that that kind of behavior and those kind of productions and the mass production and the fast change of cheap throwaway products is basically like disposable clothing. Most of that clothing, either it broke and you can't wear it anymore and it goes in the trash right. or it gets put in the trash because it's so out of style because it was so heavily trendy that it's immediately out of trend and then right. the people that bought it don't want to wear it anymore. That amount of stuff that's ending up in the landfills matters finally more to a generation of people enough that this massive company is going out of business because that model, people don't want to that buy is, into it anymore. That's encouraging to hear. But in terms of architecture and design outside of fashion, I'm not hearing that as much. Well, because it's you can't you For can't instance, make a new building every right. but you can season. But you can rent a different apartment every year. I just heard okay. literally on the way back to the office to record this episode, NPR did a little bit about a developer in Denver that originally started building homes after the recession for rent because they assumed that people who were having trouble in the recession would want to rent a home and so they could save to buy a home. And what they found was more people who had the money to buy a home were preferring to rent homes. And they are now just producing homes as fast as possible to rent. That's insane. Those people aren't doing the math. By, by the thousands. I mean, this is a huge operation and everything they build is to rent. So the trend for clothing, I am on board and I'm super excited. The trend for architecture seems to be going for, a, I am just going to pick a flavor. And the terms of leases are like six months now where it's just like people are just trading design right. as fast as they can, at least right now. And are we going to be stuck with all these homes and apartment buildings and everything of a micro trend that disappears as quickly as it came? Well, yes. Yes, we will. <laughs> okay. Because those people aren't running the actual numbers and are not going right. to ever be able to buy a house. Correct. Pretty much. Right. So... I mean, people can do what they want with their money. Right. And I mean, I'm not judging at all these people's decisions. I'm just thinking about what it means for the role design is playing in the world, period. The short run design trend seems wasteful and dangerous and worse for the world to me. I know that you. I'm feeling a little pessimistic about this. We'll go out on a whim with me here about this. Yes, of course I will. So all the big downsides of this have to do with wasted materials and energy and all these things, right? Well, if people can't get a long enough attention span to want to stay in one structure for, let's just say, five years or whatever, mm -hmm. however it pencils out with the structure that was built, maybe we need to have a way of changing that style and the, the form enough technologically so that short attention span can be resolved with, you know, the instead of repainting all the walls, the walls are now just changed, right. you know, and instead cool. of like the furniture is yeah. all just it's just rendered. But somehow it's I don't have the like sci fi background to use the I right do. terminology here to explain this. But like the furniture is not real, but it supports you. You can sit on it yep. and you just be like, what do I feel like today? Oh, I don't know. I feel like a 1920s style. And it just renders 
I mean, the space is, out for you. I almost I'm worried because I could nerd out it's so like, ridiculously like right now. In a certain style. Yep. There was a very famous author who's a hero of mine. I think I might have even mentioned him on an episode before, William Gibson, mm-hmm. who coined the term cyberspace and he's one of the most important, truly modern authors. He wrote a book called Idoru. And in that book, there was architecture, buildings that would grow Mm -hmm. and that you would just change the DNA of the building and the building would grow to suit. And the building was just this living thing that you could manipulate to be whatever you needed to be Mm -hmm. within certain guidelines. Sure. It totally reminds me of that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That is incredibly exciting to me, even though it might be horrifying Or maybe it's like the Matrix to a degree. Possibly. Inception. Just like build these worlds. Mm -hmm. You could incept what your house is going to be at a given time. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe the iteration is happening and it's wasteful because, oh man, this is going to go off a limb here. I apologize if I lose like 99% of the listeners here. Bye. If the virtual <laughs> visualization isn't good enough and accessible enough yet, if you could truly see your iterations and experience your iterations without manufacturing them, without literally making them mm-hmm. and share them in a ubiquitous way. I think the only missing key here and actually... We should do some research because I think there is progress being made about these things. Some, but like seeing things is really advancing quite fast. It is still but rudimentary, the, though. But it's the other things. We have to get the other senses involved. Like you're never really going to be convinced if when you touch the thing that you don't have a tactile experience for what this supposed fabric feels like. Right. Or what does it smell like? That's true. What, you know. What does this chair taste like? All of the senses have to be involved in order to efficiently fool <laughs> my, us. My dog Shiloh real. knows exactly what my chairs taste like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to have to build that in or Shiloh's just going to be like, I'm not into this style today. It doesn't taste yeah, as good no, as yesterday. Charles, Charles, it's just different flavor. <laughs> yeah. Chair next time. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. So the other side of this whole conversation is about design movements. And this is kind of actually the combination of two subjects I thought about talking about. One was obviously like short production runs. And the other was about like there hasn't been a real movement in a while. We talked a little bit when we were talking about Bjark Ingels about how like he just definitely does not represent an architectural movement. He's the anti-movement in our humble opinion. (laughs) And I wonder if part of that is not necessarily just him causing that, but him being a result of an anti-movement era. We're either resistant to a movement of any kind or whether maybe that is the reflection of our times because of the instability of our times. Is that just people will remember about these 20 years that there was no movement, period. Not to get super academic and esoteric, when steel was invented as like a construction option to hold something up structurally. The next 40 years of church design, which was the only real custom architecture that was happening at the time, was awful. And it was just people jamming steel wherever they could into like big ass cathedral spaces Mm. where they would just make these giant vaults that went up like 300 feet and like make fake steel columns that held it up Mm because they didn't know what else to do. And they were just like, oh, my God, we have this new thing. We can do anything. And they just like crap steel everywhere. Okay, I'm just going to like believe you on that for right now because I haven't studied this in a while. I'll show you some images afterwards. But that was because there was no scarcity of it, right? Whereas if you look at the steel bridges that were constructed 
where there was a scarcity of that material. They are beautiful because it was a material that with scarcity, you can rely on its tensile properties and make these really intricate and beautiful things that require way less material. So if you don't have enough of it or don't have the ability to produce enough of it, you are forced into really maximizing the material's properties in order to make much lighter and, you know, in my opinion, more beautiful structures right. because of that. So I'm wondering, you know, like look at bridges in, I don't know, France, whatever, you know, France, whatever. Whatever. Probably, but, probably. Probably. No, yeah. I know I sound like an idiot. But <laughs> just Google it, people. <laughs> but but the, this question of scarcity, I think, does play into this because with short run production, things like that, are they trying to create a false sense of scarcity to make a product more popular and sell more? Or, you know, is the scarcity real or is the scarcity manufactured? And if it is manufactured, is it manufactured because they're trying to drive up the price or are they creating scarcity because that's what the population wants is that short attention span, new thing right away, next thing. So the scarcity occurs as kind of a like a side effect. Well, with, with steel, it was public works projects and war efforts that created the scarcity. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an artificial no, but, scarcity. But with the short run manufacturing, it things, could be an artificial, an artificial scarcity. I just wonder if it's like, okay, designers are definitely going insane. Maybe one of the reasons I mean, that's they are been true. is because there are so many new tools and new things all the time that it's difficult to concentrate. It's almost maybe the movement is just a movement of ADD mm-hmm. because we can't focus because every five minutes someone is telling us about a new technology, a new app, a new VR program, a new website, a new way to visualize, a new way to make, a new way to 3D print. And simultaneously, the old ways seem arcane and the new ways seem so impossibly new that we're confused. Or, yeah, maybe just to add another question mark to the thing, because of all that, and explicitly because of all that, all the rapid change, all these things, it's hard for people to grasp and focus on a thing, which then may lead to the massive uptick in the like nostalgic movement of all these things. And so if you have people being so nostalgic for these other times, then they're not going to create a new movement because what they really want is this nostalgic thing from this former movement that existed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. It's like escapism. Yeah. It's literal escapism through it's design. Like, like the trend of now is not now. It's the era of nostalgia. And we're just cycling through. That's fascinating. Actually. Different areas. Yeah. It's like so, you can't, it's like you're just changing the channel. <laughs> no, it's really fascinating, Rachel. No, I seriously, there's like the paper on this. Like, it's like we're just changing the design channel mm-hmm. quickly because there's nothing on that's any good. Yeah. And so you're seeking that thing that gave you that feeling that you used to love or whatever. Mm-hmm. Got the chemicals in your brain firing exactly the way that mm-hmm. felt right. And you're looking for it. And you're looking for it. You can't find it in the future because there's so much happening that you can't focus on anything. So you start looking for it in the past. And then there's enough people across many generations that are all falling into this problem at the same time that you have people of different ages who are going to naturally be nostalgic about different eras. Like I am not nostalgic about the 90s because I was too young to look back on that period of time and think, oh, that was cool. You know, like Mm -hmm. I I wasn't old enough to be idolizing the people that were famous at that time. Right. Right. And actually, now that I think about it. So then what does that mean for people, you know, the millennial generation when they get further on and they look back, who are they going to like? What are the areas? We don't know yet. You know, it's that Chuck Klosterman book. Oh, man. that I'm totally obsessed with. Uh, What if we're wrong? Chuck Klosterman book. 
go out and buy that book now. <laughs> it is literally all about that. It is about how we cannot possibly objectively look at our own time and see what will endure. Mm -hmm. But I'm positing nothing will endure from this time. Oof, that's just very pessimistic. I don't like me. Yeah, that's dark. That's I think, I think I'll, <laughs> let me lighten it up. A I little. apologize. I, and it's funny, like I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying that out of like I'm not like trying really hard to be pessimistic about it. And in fact, there's so many exciting things about being able to iterate quickly. And we're gonna be having a guest, hopefully very soon, actually, who's gonna talk about how this ability to iterate quickly can be a wonderful thing for design. I just really wanna focus on the danger of it. I think it's happening so fast that you can't pin down right now what you think about. But with time, you will be able to look back and be like, oh, yeah, that was the era of the smartphone. Think about it. like back when you had your last phone that was before you had a smartphone. Mm -hmm. When was that? And what was your life like? The amount that our lives all changed once yeah, we think. got smartphones it was, about, was completely game changing. Yeah, it was about 06, maybe 07. When was the iPhone? What was the first year of the iPhone? You're a super I should Apple know person. That. Yeah. Oof, they're going to revoke your fail. Apple card, Rachel. My iPhone just like exploded. It was like... Apple police are about to like bang <laughs> shut down me the down. door. And just be like, take it away. Take it away from there. All yeah. my devices don't work anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ouch. I no, think, I think it, was it was like 07 or 06. Something like that. Yeah. And I got... First smartphone I got was... It was the Android G1. It was the first Android phone, essentially. That still had a... See, I didn't have on. the original iPhone. I had the 3GS, not the... The first iPhone didn't do anything. Everyone's pretty much, everyone knows that. First iPhone didn't do anything. The 3G one was like the first one that did stuff. Well, the Wasn't first that? iPhone was still monumental. Oh, it changed right? everything. But, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so here's, here's why I'm going with this, is mm -hmm. that if you think about that and how phones have completely changed everything that we've done for more than a decade now. But I think we're at a moment where that is about to completely shift. I think that the smartphone moment is coming to an end. I guess not moment. It really is. been a decade. The decade of the smartphone, I think, is maybe it'll take some time, but it's going to be over soon. Like maybe we still have them in various devices. Like we're always going to have the technology of it, but it's not going to be as much of a cultural thing where everybody is always looking at them. It's going to become not as centric around it. I'm beginning to think you will become the biggest sci-fi nerd because this is all William Gibson. Well, I'm kind of a closet sci-fi nerd. I just don't know as many, I don't know the terminology, but yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. grew up on this stuff. So William Gibson wrote about wearable computers in the 80s. Mm -hmm. There was a main character in several of his novels that wore his computer on his legs mm -hmm. and all the interface would just show up in front of them. They were called sand vendors or something. I forget. But mm -hmm. that seems to be actually where most smartphone technology is going, mm -hmm. where it's a thing that's much more part of you than it is now. Right now, there's still these separate bricks that we carry around. Maybe that is well, the thing that's going to change. Not, you know, like I don't carry my around. The watch is start. Yeah, it's like the. the this is the, the very beginning a of step that. away yes. having this watch because you don't need to have the phone with you all the time. It allows you to be separated out. Right. And it but allows you. But you still need you, to look at it. Yeah, but not at the phone. Glancing at your watch is a whole right. lot less than being buried in your phone. So I noticed this a lot on vacation. We were going to museums. I hadn't really gone to a museum that would be full of tourists in a while. Mm -hmm. So then they were doing that. And it was mind boggling to me, the different way that people take in pieces of famous art versus the last time that I was in one, a museum like that. When you go to the Seattle Art Museum and people aren't just like crowding around every piece of art in there with their phones. Mm -hmm. But we're in these museums where every single person has their phone out 
and it's this crush of people trying to get close to this piece of famous art and not to look at it but to get a picture of it on their cell phone. Interesting. So Blake and I actually did take a few photos, but of people take photos of art, you know, like, like taking, like the art is back there and you basically can't even see it, but there's a million people with phones and the museums don't allow selfie sticks for obvious reasons. It in itself is this completely different societal behavior that has come up in these spaces. And I hadn't been quite so thrust in it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't tend to be in like tourist hotspots very often and seeing that in a museum with these pieces of art that are so beautiful and yet so ruined because everybody just has to have the picture of it. They, they're missing, you know, they're missing the actual art because no photo of an amazing piece of art, even completely professionally shot ever looks as good as the real thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was so extreme. It just seems like it has to be that it's getting to where that will shift. It was just so far. It was just so extreme that I was like, this can't sustain. And me and Blake and maybe a couple other people being there just watching this unroll, you can see that those are people that are starting to be like, yeah, this is just getting weird. This is going to shift. Eventually, mm. eventually people are going to move beyond this. Interesting. So let's apply that paradigm shift to the chair example, the uh-huh. furniture example. What do you think is next when people just go, this is ridiculous, this is too much? Well, I think we're starting to see it with some products where people are realizing that it's better to have fewer things that are made better. I mean, even we were talking about food earlier. You know, it's better to have less food, but better. Mm -hmm. Have fewer chairs over the course of your life. Hang on to one or two really well-made chairs. Have fewer pieces of clothing. I mean, maybe they look a little more classic and they're way better made and you just don't need to be wearing whatever the next short-lived trend is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm on my soapbox a little bit about it, but like that's what my natural state is. And it has not always been, but I've been shifting into it that this is just ridiculous. I don't want to spend money on something that is going to look dated really fast and fall apart. I want to buy fewer things. I don't live in some big, big mansion. I live in a small space in the city. I don't have room to store that kind of stuff. I want less stuff that just is better. But now square that with a generation younger than us that moves around constantly. That doesn't want to own anything permanent ever. Okay, but if you own so little that you can just pack it up and put it in a suitcase? They're still consuming design every day. Yeah, but you can consume good design and, you know, furniture, sure. Maybe maybe it doesn't apply as easy to things that aren't packable. But if you can't pack up enough clothes in a suitcase that you don't have to check on a plane and go travel for a few weeks, you're doing something wrong. Well, that's a larger, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a larger issue. I'm trying to hone in on the fact that there seems to be two value sets that are colliding and incompatible. Okay, so like the nomadic versus the... Versus the sick of fast fashion okay, value set. But you can also be a nomad and just have very few things. And in order to exist with those right. very few that's things, true. they have to be very high quality, well-designed. You're being a bad nomad if you just throw everything away every time you move. The point of being a bad good nomad, nomad is that, yeah, bad nomad. <laughs> oh, my God. You should buy that URL. <laughs> yeah. Bad, Nobody buy that. Kind of, well, wait. We're recording this, so it's not yeah, going to stay don't secret buy it. for very long. So, like, by the time this episode gets edited, you need to own all I that. I need to argue about it, yeah. And then it's going to be out. Yeah. <laughs> and all hundred of our listeners yeah. will be. <laughs> <laughs> but for serious, for real, you know, nomads don't travel 
travel with nothing and then buy everything at the new location. They travel light. From what I'm reading, I don't have firsthand knowledge here. They buy and sell. Mm -hmm. It's the buy and Craigslist. Okay, okay. So traditional OG nomads. (laughs) (laughs) OG nomads. Also a good URL. (laughs) (laughs) Also, yeah. Oh my God, you're on fire. (laughs) Just gonna go on my (laughs) smartphone for a second. One of those URLs costs eleven ninety nine. That's not much. The other one is five thousand dollars. Which one? I'm not telling. F- it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's a little bit of disparity. I'm telling there. you, I'm good at picking these. <laughs> you are. Um, there is an amazing, exciting part that we are now able to iterate so fast, and that shouldn't be discounted. We can now afford to try things twenty different ways. Mm-hmm. And fail much more than we used to fail, and fail less spectacularly than we used to fail. Or more spectacularly because we can do things bigger and faster. I keep thinking of there's this neighborhood in Redmond. I'm not going to say which little pocket of Redmond, but there's all of these homes that were done by clearly the same architect or number of architects, which was like mid century gone wrong. And it's hard to look at these homes and be like, oh, yeah, they're not Mm -hmm. the best that mid-century had to offer. Nailed it. And back then, it was just like, well, we got to make these now. Mm -hmm. This we won't know. So we're just going to make many, many, many of these homes and then history will judge us. Maybe the silver lining is we can judge faster than we used to be able to. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe we are thinning out bad design quicker. I guess my only worry is that good design is getting lost. Because it's not being given time to be recognized. Okay, here, let me let me play the optimist for... Let me just try this on our size. <laughs> Put on the optimist hat <laughs> that we keep in the corner here, yeah. design goggles. We are iterating through many, many more things, potentially. I mean, we I guess for we sure. are. I was going to say, there might be some things that got iterated DIY culture back in the day is real. Short-run culture remembered. is remembered. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, let's just go with the premise that we are iterating through many, many, many more things mm-hmm. and having to sort through many, many more. Mm-hmm. As long as we are capable of keeping up with that ability to sort effectively and understand things enough, maybe even to sort through and, and have a level that's like, well, this is mostly terrible, but there's a kernel here. And where the little thread of hope can be that somewhere in all of that stuff, in that glut of things that are being produced and glut of ideas and good and bad, there will be enough kernels of things that will be able to rise to the surface and be iterated upon. I think that the only way out of this is iteration. And so it's the key is being able to find those things that are worth iterating on, even if they seem pretty terrible at the start. Being able to have that eye to find what's worth circling back around on those will be the things that will have the longevity to get enough cycles of thought and design to be the things that end up having the longevity to last and be remembered up and looked back upon and be nostalgic about in 50 years. I couldn't have said it better myself. There you go. Done. Write that down. Got that mic. It's connected. It's connected. Yeah. I'll just like swat it at the table. Rachel, (laughs) thanks for recording with me. You're welcome. That was a good chat. I'm really looking forward. I think I really do think this we're going to do a a sequel to this chat. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth pursuing. Thank you very much for joining us. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on bordermelon.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks. <laughs>